All right, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin or on the screen as we close uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, This is 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 24, where Paul gives some very practical applications uh, to the church. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for the effective work, for effective work, has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, and, and actually the last several weeks, no, it was two weeks ago, I was gone last week, we've been talking about the resurrection, right? And Paul has taken us up into the celestial sphere as we've talked about what is to come, uh, the coming of the Lord, the transformation of our holy bodies to be like his glorious body. And yet we finish with this kind of laundry list as Paul, uh, you know, gives some directions and, and uh, you know, mentions some people and so on. And it seems, quite frankly, fairly mundane compared to what we just examined in 1 Corinthians 15. And why is that? And the answer is because we live in the here and the now. That we don't yet live in the glories to come, do we? We live in the mundane of mortgages and homework assignments and changing diapers. And we need help to see how the glory that awaits us ought to affect how we live in this day-to-day realities of the world and in our local church. And so that's what Paul is doing. He's showing, he's translating how we are to live out this life. And what Paul is saying to us is to embrace Grace in the mundane, 
and hold on to it with all your might. Because in the end, it is about who you love above yourself and what you have stood for and lived for that make the difference. And so Paul, as we look at this message here, really teaches us three things that we have to resist in this challenging world. Number one, we need to resist a life of self-reliance. Number two, we need to resist a life of self-promotion. And finally, we need to resist a life of self-support. So let's look at this first point, to resist a life of self-reliance. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 gives some instructions on how we are to conduct ourselves, in which he says to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. When we hear these instructions, what do we think of? I think we're tended to translate them into the language of our day, which essentially is to man up and to be strong. You can do it. To sort of call upon this uh, American Marlboro man kind of mentality of grit it out and you, uh, it's up to you. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. What he's saying is to stand firm in the faith. To hold fast to what you believe. This word, the, the faith, is shorthand for the gospel. What Paul is saying is not to be strong and stand firm in yourself, but rather in him. To hold fast and believe in what Jesus Christ has done. That he has died for our sins. That he is raised again in the resurrection. That through this act, he has given us his righteousness, and we are a new creation in Christ, and we are reconciled and made children of God, and the kingdom of God is our destiny and is our citizenship. It's interesting when they ask Jesus in John 6, 29, what are the works we are to do that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. So Paul is saying in the midst of the mundane, we must stand firm, not in ourselves, but in the faith. And why do we have to stand firm in the mundane? It's because of the challenges of the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world that we live in, the scriptures tell us that Christ came to his own and his own did not recognize him. We live in a world of self-reliance, of self-sufficiency, that exalts above all else the autonomy of the self. And because I am the measure, it's all up to me. I don't know if you remember this song. It was written by an artist called Desiree, and it was called You Gotta Be. Whenever I hear it, I think about this kind of message, and it goes something like this. It says, listen as your day unfolds, challenge what the future holds, try and keep your head up to the sky. Lovers, they may cause you tears, go ahead, release your fears, because you got to be bad, you got to be bold, you got to be wiser, you got to be hard, you got to be tough, you got to be stronger, you got to be cool, you got to be calm, you got to stay together. And all I know is that love will save the day. 
I don't know about you, but I get exhausted every day having to be bad and bold and wiser and hard and tougher and stronger. But that's the message of the world. It's up to you. But the message of the gospel is it's not about you. It's about him. It's about believing in the one whom he has sent. We have to stand firm in the midst of the world, and we have to stand firm against the devil. The devil continues. He has no power over the Christian. And the only power he has is the power of the lie. The power to come alongside you and me and say, did God really say that he would care for you? Did God really say that you are the apple of his eye? Did God really say that he will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus? If we do not stand firm, we will not stand at all. And then I have to stand firm against the flesh, against that which is earthly that remains in me. As much as I hate to admit it, there is a part of me that does not want God, that wants to live my own life, that doesn't want anything to have to do with him. This flesh that dwells in my members, that continues to pull against me. To be a Christian by its very nature is to suffer. Because there is a part of me that continues to pull me back down to earth, even when my heart longs for heaven. I must stand firm in the faith. Goes on to say to be watchful, to have spiritual eyes for what's going on around you. It was Thomas Jefferson that said the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. We are in an ocean town, and so we get this. You know, when you go to the beach and you're uh, out there enjoying and gallivanting in the water, and you have one eye on your friends and one eye on the beach, but you always have one eye on the next wave that's coming, right? You never take your eyes off that, because if you do, before you know it, it comes upon you, and it knocks you off your feet. Paul is saying, Don't be mistaken. It is challenging and difficult to stand firm and to hold on to the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. And so we must watch the ocean day after day. Be watchful and act like men. What's he saying there? He's saying, don't be childish. It's not saying don't be childlike. We are called to be childlike but we are not called to be childish. In other words, be responsible. Hold on to that which God has held on to for us. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. See, God has given us a strength. He has given us himself through this other helper who will be with us together, the spirit of truth the Holy Spirit. We are not in this alone. And so we are to be strong, to be dependent, to be led by the Spirit and to walk by Him, to live lives of prayer. Because the message is not to be standing firm in ourselves, but rather in Him. I remember when I was in high school, 
we would walk home from stuff. This was before we could drive from our school, and there was a, there was a park, and in that park was a merry-go-round. I don't think they have merry-go-rounds anymore, do they? It's the liabilities off the, uh, you know, through the roof, right? You know, that went the way of lawn darts, I guess. But back in the day, there was the merry-go-round. And, uh, you know, the way to do the merry-go-round is, you know, you, you get sort of laying down with your head, you know, kind of off the merry-go-round, and someone would spin that thing as hard as you could, you know, and, and you're going around and around and around, and pretty, pretty sh- soon you can't tell what's up and what's down. See, there's only one way to ride the merry-go-round and to actually uh, be able to enjoy it, and that is to move to the center to stand in the middle, because the only thing connected to the ground in a merry-go-round is the fulcrum point. So instead of on the edge where you're whipping all the way around and the thing is wobbling, it's in the center that you find safety and enjoyment. See, that's what Paul is saying. For us to continue in our faith, established and firm, not move from the hope that is held out in the gospel. And so my question for you and for me today is this. Where do you make your stand in 2023? Where is your hope? Is it in the fact that my family is healthy and successful and prosperous? Is it maybe in the fact that right now we're financially secure and there's money in the bank and I've got a good job? Is it in the fact that I'm healthy and I'm strong and I've got my wits about me? If you haven't discovered yet, you will discover that life is like a merry-go-round. One minute it's calm and everything's great. And then it gets spinning so fast that you cannot tell what is up and what is down. But you see, in the midst of the chaos, there is one thing that never changes. And that is the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. None of those things that I mentioned in themselves are bad. But we don't own them. We're simply stewards of them. Their responsibilities and gifts, and they shift and change. But you see, in the end, it is about who you love above yourself and what you have stood for and lived for that makes the difference. So embrace grace with all of your heart. God calls us not to live a life of self-reliance, but rather on his gospel, and also to resist a life of self-promotion. In verse 5 on, Paul begins to describe his plans. And notice how he models his plans after the things that promote Jesus Christ. First, we see that his plan is to encourage existing believers, specifically those in Corinth. Look at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. I don't want to see you just in passing, but I hope to spend some time with you. See, Paul has had a lot of hard things to say in this letter, right? But Paul wants to communicate to them that I'm not done with you. 
that everything I've said is for the sake of you growing in Christ. Indeed, even in his next letter, 2 Corinthians 7, he's in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that, that my letter grieved you, though only for a while. But I rejoice because even though you were grieved, you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. See, Paul is saying, what I'm saying and communicating to you is because I love you. And I want you to grow. And when you care enough about someone, you care enough to say the hard things. For who they are is more important than how they will react to you. But Paul wants to spend time with them because when you say hard things, you also want to say positive things. It was Paul in Hebrews 10.24 that said, And let us consider how we may stir one another up toward love and good deeds. See, what Paul understands is that we need each other. The Christian race is a three-legged race, and we cannot run it alone. We have to help others and to be helped by them. Our yearly theme for this church is being the body. And what this is communicating to us is that you are the leg that somebody needs. And someone else has a leg that you need. Pity the man, the Bible says, who falls and has no one to help him up. And so Paul is saying, I want to come together with you so we can burn brighter together. You ever know this? Uh, notice this, that when you have a fire and the logs are together, they burn bright. But when you take one and you take it and you set it aside, it burns out faster. Wood is meant to burn together. Look around you and ask yourself the question, who can I support? Who do I need to come alongside? Or who do I need to come alongside me in my time of need? Paul went so far in Philippians 1.23 to say, I'm hard-pressed between the two, going, dying and being with Christ and being with you. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is all about encouraging existing believers, and so should we. But the message he also gives is about sharing Christ with those who do not believe. Notice what he, what he says in verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. See, the reason Paul is not yet going to Corinth is because he's in Ephesus and he's discovering there are opportunities to share with people the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing is in the morning, he's plying his trade. He's a tent maker. And there's a, there's a street in Corinth in which people would ply their wares. As a tent maker, uh, that's not only uh, mending cab, uh, canvas and fabric, but it would be leather work as well, awnings, anything with a needle and a thread. Paul is working his job. 
But he has also rented out the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. And at a certain time, every day he is going there. And he is holding a meeting to talk about who Jesus Christ is. See, Paul is evaluating his job opportunities based on where he can share Christ best. I don't know if you do that. You know, when we get a job position, we look at it from the perspective of what's best for our family and the financial aspect and all of those things. And to be sure, there is a place for that, right? The scriptures tell us that a a married person is concerned about how they can please their spouse. But do we evaluate the opportunities in our life from the perspective of what is our best opportunity to tell other people about Jesus Christ? Do we factor that into our relationships, in our community, in our job? Paul has reoriented his life to the magnificent uh, responsibility of telling the world about Jesus Christ. And notice what he says, a wide door has been opened for this effective work, and there are many adversaries. To which I raise my hand and say, Paul, this is bad, it's time to leave. To which Paul says, you're absolutely wrong, this is good, it's time to stay. Because opposition means opportunity. Whenever there will be opportunity, there will be opposition. See, Jesus said, I have a baptism in Luke 12 to undergo. And how great is my distress. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For now on, There will be two against three and three against two. That Jesus Christ is a dividing line between people. And all of life is oriented around how people will see him. It was this way for Jesus. And the way it was for Jesus, the way it will be for us. We must orient our life to encouraging existing believers, sharing Christ with non-believers, and strengthening the church. Look at verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him, but help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. See, Timothy is doing the work of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, we see that that is why he sent Timothy so he could remind the church of Paul's ways in Christ. And Paul is saying, don't despise him, because Paul is concerned about the hard things that he has said to the Corinthians, and he fears that they're going to, uh, through transference, if you will, give Timothy a poor reception. What he's saying to the church is to look for opportunities to encourage and bless missionaries, parachurch people, pastors, and look to build up the church. In other words, the focus of my life is on sharing Christ, strengthening the people in the church, and strengthening the church at large. To be about the church. Orient your life, not for a life of self-promotion, but rather 
a life of Christ promotion. I don't know if you've ever used a compass before. A compass points north, right? If you were to go to the North Pole, this is the trivia question, where would the compass point? Well, in theory, it should point nowhere. It should sort of spin around, right? Float because it's at the north. It's at the North Pole. But the reality is north is not the north of the compass. The north of the compass is called magnetic north. And it's actually on Ellesmere Island, northern Canada, about 500 kilometers, kilometers south of the North Pole. The, the core of the earth is iron, and there's a liquid metal uh, 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 flow that's underneath that has oriented so that magnetic north, that's where it is. It's not the North Pole. It's actually right here. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, I think the reason I bring that up is because the world says to you and I that you are the North. And the gospel says you are not. That the true North, the magnetic North, is not you, but Jesus Christ. And so to orient your life, your relationships, your job, your community, your family, toward lifting up and strengthening believers as they follow Jesus Christ. So who is first in your life? Who are you orienting to when you take out your compass and navigate your life? Jesus was very upfront with us about what it meant to follow him. Matthew 10, 37 puts it this way. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying that I am the only one who you're worthy who is worthy for you to give your entire life to. And he says that what you seek, you will find. And so he says to you and to me to make me first. Because if we make him first, we will be about his priorities. His kingdom, his people, his gospel. Because in the end, it is about who you love above yourself and what you have stood for and lived for that make the difference. We must resist a life of self-promotion and embrace a life of Christ promotion. Which leads me to my final point, to resist a life of self-preservation. We see in verse 1, Paul gives instructions concerning this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. The Jewish church has undergone intense persecution. So to be a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem, your life is in your hands. They've lost work. No one will work with them. They're poor. They're challenged. And Paul and a call has gone out to the various other churches to care 
for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. So what Paul wants to do is to cement the relationship between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. To care for them, which is unheard of in that community. You take care of your own people. You don't take care of anyone else. And it's easy to have the mentality that that's not my problem because those aren't my people. But we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Catholic, the word there means universal. It means that no matter where you go on this big globe we call earth, that Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if they're different from us in their race, in their nationality, maybe in some of their second-tier beliefs. I am my brother's keeper. Jesus tells the story of that uh, Jew who went down to Jericho, right, and was taken upon by robbers and beaten and left for dead. And along came a priest and then a, a Levite. And both of them, when they saw this person, they crossed to the other side. Because they didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to deal with it. It wasn't their problem. Even though they were Jews and he was a Jew. Heck, he might have deserved it. Who knows? But a Samaritan who was coming along saw and stopped and took care of that person, bandaging his wounds with oil and wine and carried him to the inn and paid for him to be watched over and came back. See, in this world, people need help. You ever wondered how much Jesus just went around doing good to people? Many of whom were not like him, right? He was the son of God. But God calls us as believers to have the same attitude to ditch a life of self-preservation and to love our neighbor as ourself. A life of self-preservation or a life of self-sacrifice, which will I embrace? Isaiah, the prophet speaking for God, condemns the Israelite nation for their lack of concern for their brother and sister. In Isaiah 58, 3, The people ask, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God responds, behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is not this the fast that I have choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday sun. 
and I, the Lord, will guide you and continually satisfy you in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden. You know, we can't help everyone, but we can help someone. Jesus is calling us to walk in his steps, and that requires sacrifice and care. It requires giving up my day and my money and my agenda. Jesus is saying, be like me and love recklessly. Care when no one else does. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me, right? We were the Jew on the side of the road. And he was the good Samaritan who came along and lifted us up when everybody passed to the other side. But you may say to me, it hurts too much to care like that. And I want to tell you that real pain is getting to the end of your life and realizing that you never really loved and you never really cared. Don't be that person. Because in the end, it is about who you love above yourself and what you have stood for and lived for that make the difference. Resist a life of self-preservation, a life of self-promotion, and a life of self-reliance. And embrace grace. Hold on to it with all your might. For we live this day in the here and now. But the future will certainly come. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you continually model for us your love and your care in your son, Jesus Christ. And the way you watch over us and you reach out to us. When everyone else forgets, you remember. And when everyone else crosses over to the other street, other side, you come near. God, we pray that our hope would be nothing less than in you and your gospel. And give us the love that you have for your church, that you died to birth. And help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our worship through our offering. Uh, we do not pass an offering plate. Rather, we have offering plates in the foyer. If you wish to give your offering, you may do so after the service. Uh, if you are new to Redeemer, don't feel compelled in any way to give. That is, um, we're just glad that you're here to be with us. Let me pray for our offering. God, we pray that you would use this offering uh, to continue to further the work of the church in being your light, in being your hands and feet and salt in a world desperately in need. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.